Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As we open our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6. We've been working our way through this Gospel of Mark, and if you've been with us, you know that over the last chapter and a half, Jesus has been ministering on two shores of the Sea of Galilee and has demonstrated that He is the Son of God, has authority and power over the natural world, over the supernatural world, and over even death itself. As His signs and mighty works have forced his disciples to ask, who is this? And as he has invited the helpless and the needy to come and put their faith in him and find salvation. But chapter 6 begins as Jesus decides to pay a visit to his family and his hometown in Nazareth. Nazareth about 25 miles to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum where he had been ministering. Now, a trip home to Nazareth should leave us a little bit on edge as we come into this passage because the last time we saw Jesus' mother and brothers was in Mark chapter 3 where they made the 25-mile trip from Nazareth up to Capernaum and had tried to grab Jesus and exit quickly stage left because they thought he had gone mad and was out of his mind. So the question is, what sort of reception is Jesus going to get as he comes home here in Mark 6? Well, let's read together. I want to read verses 1 through 13 together. This is God's word. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. Father, we thank you for this passage in your word, and we would ask that you would speak to us by your Spirit now 
Draw us to Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. In many ways, there's nothing quite like coming home. Maybe you've been away at college your first semester or your first year and you're coming home over summer break. Or maybe you've gotten married and you've gotten your first job perhaps and moved away and now you're coming home for a week of vacation. And as you come home, perhaps you you reconnect with high school friends. Maybe you grab coffee, you reminisce about the good old days together there in your hometown. Or, Or maybe it's later and maybe you're coming back with your wife and kids and as you come home, you want to take them around on a little tour and show them all your old haunts, where you, where you rode your bike to get milkshakes or where you, you went to the pond and caught turtles or where you played soccer or whatever it is you, you did. And of course, in addition, as you come home, you get to spend time with your parents and your siblings. And all this is part of the comfort and the joy of coming home. Except when coming home is not comforting and not joyful. Maybe you have friends who have gone down a different path religiously or politically and you now have irreconcilable differences that make it difficult to connect. Maybe you have significant conflict with siblings. Maybe home is a place of trauma and a return there is a source of stress and heartache. And sadly, many of us know that scenario as well. Well, here is Jesus making his return trip home. And Jesus' homecoming... As he comes back to friends and family that he had lived with for 30 years, is a return to a group of people who do not receive him, but take offense at him and reject him. And as we watch Jesus' return trip play out, along with his instructions to his disciples after this trip, one key point comes clearly into focus, and it is this. To know Jesus... To be presented with your Savior and yet to reject him comes with the greatest spiritual consequences. To know Jesus, to hear of him and yet to reject him comes with the greatest spiritual consequences. And this morning, I want to look first at Nazareth's rejection of Jesus and then at the consequences of rejection second. So let's start with Nazareth's rejection. Jesus arrived home with his disciples, and one of his first acts, one of the first things he does is go to the synagogue and begin teaching there. That's what he did often. And as happened every time Jesus taught in the synagogue, people were astonished at his teaching. We've seen this a number of times in Mark already. Jesus taught with authority and not as the scribes. And Jesus taught with wisdom and understanding. No one had heard teaching like this before. And in addition to his teaching with wisdom and understanding, Jesus was coming home with a reputation for the mighty works that he had done throughout Galilee. And so as Jesus comes, word has traveled fast. And you can imagine word traveling fast, especially in a place like Nazareth. It was a village, probably not more than 500 people. We have many neighborhoods in Mannheim Township with more than 500 people. It's a small place, and this is not a transient place. People have lived together and known each other for generations. And so you can imagine the chatter. Jesus is coming back. I heard Jesus is casting out demons with a word. I heard he raised a girl from the dead. What? How is he doing these things? Where is he getting these things? And you can hear the people beginning to tick off what they know in verses 3 
and then into four. This guy's never trained with a rabbi. He was a carpenter. And carpentry doesn't give you this kind of wisdom and mighty deeds. And this is the son of Mary. This kind of wisdom and might wouldn't come from Mary. Now, I think it's important for us to note that calling Jesus the son of Mary may well be significant here. Even if Joseph had died at this point, a man would still be called by the son of his father. It's almost certainly significant. An implication here that in Nazareth, the site of Joseph and Mary's betrothal, there is still some suspicion around the details of Jesus' birth. Jesus is Mary's son, they know that, but beyond that, they're not willing to make a commitment. And this only adds fuel to the surprise that this man would be the one with wisdom and mighty acts of power. And of course, not only do they know his trade, they know his mother, they also know his siblings. And certainly, this kind of wisdom and might didn't come from James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And as I read these questions, I think of 2 Corinthians 5.16, where Paul writes that he had once regarded Christ according to the flesh, although he no longer does so. What does he mean there? He means that at one time, he and others looked at Christ only according to his earthly identity. They looked at Christ and saw a man from Nazareth, a normal family from a tiny rural village. They saw an upstart carpenter who claimed too much for himself. Now, of course, for Paul, Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus. He confronted him in his resurrected divine glory. And so, Christ, so Paul cannot regard him according to the flesh any longer He knows that he is the Lord. But for the village of Nazareth, their assumptions about Jesus are still according to the flesh. And his family, his trade, his upbringing, the years they knew him and spent with him, define him in their minds. And they do not square with these great things. And so they ask, how does this man have these things? Now, there's any number of ways that Nazareth could have responded to these questions. They, they could have responded with curiosity, and they could have gone to Jesus and asked him directly about these things. Maybe they would have responded with some sense of suspicion and said, well, I'm just, we're just going to wait and see how this thing plays out. Or they could have rejoiced. They could have been proud that this guy who is now the most famous man in all of Galilee is from Nazareth. It's the town of Chequetaw, Oklahoma, Small town, barely 3,000 people. It's just over half the size of of New Holland. But Chequetaw is the hometown of country star and American Idol winner Carrie Underwood. And they are proud of it. In fact, if you were to drive today to Chequetaw, Oklahoma, you would be greeted at the town limits with a sign that says, Welcome to Chequetaw, the home of Carrie Underwood. Kentwood, Louisiana is even smaller. It's less than 2,500 people. But they've taken things an even further step, dedicating an entire portion of a museum to celebrate the rise of their hometown celebrity, Britney Spears. So you can go to the Britney Spears Museum in Kentwood, Louisiana. But in Nazareth, there is no sign saying, Welcome to Nazareth, the home of Jesus. They are not rejoicing. They're not even asking sincere or curious questions. Nazareth, we read, takes offense at Jesus. Why? 
Why offense? Well, Luke 4, I think, makes it clear that when Jesus came to Nazareth and was teaching in the synagogue, he drew attention to the fact that he was fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah. He connected the dots between Isaiah and its prophecies, Isaiah 61, and his arrival. But Nazareth thinks they know better. And you can hear him saying, Jesus, we babysat you when you were two years old. We played tag with you and I was faster than you, Jesus. You fixed my feed box and I made your sandals. We were, we were business partners. We were equals, Jesus. So don't come to us telling us you're the Messiah. We've known you your whole life. Don't come to us telling us that our eternal destiny depends on putting our faith in you, Jesus. That is arrogant and offensive. This is not an uncommon response. You see in verse 4 that Jesus quotes a proverb. It was a proverb known throughout Israel, one we have evidence of a similar proverb around the ancient world. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In other words, a a man who becomes a, a prophet, a mouthpiece for God, is least accepted by those who knew him before he had this calling. It's said in France that the French philosopher Montaigne was considered a scribbling country proprietor by his hometown, a decent businessman by the town right over, and a famous thinker and philosopher by the rest of France. And you see the the pattern. The closer you get to the hometown, the less remarkable or famous you were. I think this is true here in Nazareth too. But if we want to get at the root of the offense that Nazareth takes at Jesus, we have to look at verses 5 and 6. There, Scripture cuts to the chase and gives the real reason for Nazareth's rejection. And the real reason is this. They do not believe in him. In fact, verse 6 says that their unbelief was such that it caused Jesus to marvel. And this is the only time in all the Gospels that we read that Jesus marveled at someone's unbelief. He marvels at the faith of some, and certainly others reject him, but here only do we read that Jesus marveled at unbelief. And of course, it's not because their unbelief caught Jesus off guard. It is rather that the extent of the stubbornness and the hardness of a human heart that would reject even the clearest conclusions that are right in front of them causes Jesus to marvel. You know, everything Nazareth needed was right there in front of them. Jesus has wisdom in mighty works beyond anything they can account for. They can't account for his wisdom in mighty works from his work or from studying or from his parents or from his siblings. What option is there left? And the the unchecked box that's left that's screaming at them is the Spirit of God. In fact, if the people had been thinking about their Old Testaments, the answer was shouting at them there too. Isaiah 11 verse 2 prophesied that a shoot would come from the stump of Jesse, the promised Messiah. And how would this person, how was this person described? The Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
They're marveling at his wisdom and his might. Where would he get these things? And here is Isaiah. Or we could look at Isaiah 61, which foretold one who would say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound. Or Isaiah chapter 9 had said that the people who walk in darkness would see a great light, that a child would be born whose name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah 9 had said that this light, this child, would come by the way of the sea in Galilee of the Gentiles. Just where Jesus has carried out all of his ministry so far. So talk about the shoe fitting. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled each of these prophecies and his astonishing wisdom and mighty acts should have given sufficient evidence that the Spirit of God was upon him and that these prophecies were all pointing to everything that he had done. In fact, remember that Luke 4 tells us Jesus even read the prophecy in Isaiah 61 in Nazareth and said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing The truth is right in front of them. And yet Nazareth shakes their heads and won't acknowledge that a man who can raise the dead with a word could have a divine calling worth believing in. And instead, they take offense at his uppity claims. Of course, unbelief is never a matter of logic or reason. It's a matter of the heart. And the heart of unbelief is what leads them to reject their Savior. And I think that is such a good reminder and a warning for us today as well. To remember that a refusal to believe in Jesus, a refusal to submit our hearts and lives to Jesus is never a matter of logic or science or reason or facts. Because the gospel is true history and has come with the divine logic of all of scripture fulfilled in him. It is a matter of the heart of our pride and our desire for what we want and following our path, which makes us unwilling to repent and come to him. And that's on full display here in Nazareth. So this is Nazareth's rejection rooted in unbelief as they respond to Jesus with offense. But I want to turn now to look, secondly, at the consequences, the spiritual consequences of rejecting Jesus, which are significant. The first consequence for unbelief is the loss of spiritual blessings. We see this in verse 5 particularly. Because certainly there were sick and needy people in Nazareth, just like there were in Capernaum, where Jesus had healed so many and done so many mighty acts. But verse 5 tells us that here in Nazareth, Jesus could do no mighty work there except for laying hands on a few sick people. Now, of course, this is not a comment on Jesus' ability. This is the divine Son of God who can calm a storm with a word. This is not saying that Jesus is unable to act. It is rather that miracles are kingdom blessings for those who look to Jesus in faith. You remember perhaps Jesus' comments to the woman that he healed in the last chapter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, He said, miracles of kingdom redemption belong to those who are of the kingdom. 
So they would be morally and spiritually inconsistent, even inappropriate, where faith is lacking. And this means that unbelief will not receive the spiritual blessings of healing and redemption that Jesus comes to offer. There's an old fable that tells of a king who issued a proclamation in his kingdom across all his area, which he summoned all of his subjects to come to the palace the next day and to bring him a sack. Now, there are many people who ask, why would the king want a sack? But among his kingdom, there were various responses. Some trusted the king and out of love for the king brought them their best sack. Others grumbled, though. They said, well, we use our sacks for our livelihood. The king has no need of a sack. And so they grabbed the barest scrap of cloth that could pass for a sorry excuse of a sack and showed up the next day. When all the subjects arrived at the palace, the king called them into the courtyard and announced his purpose. And he said, today I've called you here because I love you. And I would like all of you to bring your sacks into my storehouses and fill your stacks, sacks with as many riches as you can fit in the sack that you have brung and take it home as yours. And so it was that those who trusted the king and brought large sacks went away blessed richly, while those who did not trust him and tried to evade the summons went home with little or nothing at all. And so it is that the people of Nazareth in their unbelief received no mighty work and few healing miracles at all. And so it is also that always that unbelief sacrifices the great spiritual blessings in Christ, both now and in the life to come. You know, back in Mark 4, Jesus had warned that with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And that the one who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. And Jesus fulfills this parable right here. As with the measure of unbelief that Nazareth uses, Jesus responds, doing no mighty work there. And then even what they have, Jesus grew up among them, is taken from them. As we read that Jesus departed and went to other villages. And we have no record that Jesus ever returned there in the Gospels. Well, that's the first consequence of unbelief, the loss of spiritual blessings. But the second consequence is that we earn spiritual judgment. And here I want to look at verses 7 through 13. Jesus sends his disciples out two by two with his message and with his authority. It was consistently the case in the ancient world that the way you received and responded to a messenger was considered your response to the king who sent that messenger. And so the way that people respond to the apostles when they come with Jesus' message and authority is their response to Jesus himself. And the directions that Jesus gives to his apostles demonstrates the urgency of their message. They're not to go out self-sufficient. They're not to pack all their food. They're not to, to take multiple changes of clothing. They're not going on vacation and they are not going to provide for themselves. They also are not looking for the most comfortable lodging. They're, they're not to switch hosts mid-stay if they don't like the continental breakfast at one spot or the, the mattress quality at another. No, they are to go with one purpose. It is to preach the kingdom of God and call for repentance. 
And when they are received and shown hospitality, they are to stay there and preach that good news. But when they are not received, if a people in a particular place will not listen to them, will not respond with repentance for their sins, then they are to leave that place and to shake off the dust that is on their feet as a testimony against them. Now, shaking off the dust of your feet was a common Jewish practice when they would travel outside of Israel and they would make a return journey. When they got to the border of Israel, they would stop and they would shake off the dust from that was on them so that they would not pollute the holy land with Gentile dust. But Jesus is directing the apostles to perform this act indicating that anyone who rejects the call to repentance and faith, even if they are geographically located within Israel, are spiritually cut off from the covenant promises and have only earned God's judgment, which they have to look forward to in the future. This is a stinging indictment. But it is nothing more than the just spiritual consequences on those who know of Jesus who hear of Jesus, who are presented with Jesus and yet reject him. And so here we have these two spiritual consequences, the loss of spiritual blessings and the earning of spiritual judgment for those who reject him. I want to step back here as we reflect on this portion of God's word because I think that there are two questions that each one of us needs to ask our hearts this morning. The first question is this, Are we aware of the danger of familiarity? The people of Nazareth had known Jesus for 30 years. They knew Jesus likely better than anyone else in Israel at this point. But it was their very familiarity with Jesus that contributed to their rejection of him. And every one of us needs to be aware of the fact that familiarity can kill passion when it ought to kindle passion. And I've spent a a decent bit of time in the Northwest, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, and it is beautiful. And every time I go, especially if I'm in the Rockies, I think, why don't I live here? And I realize I'm not really tempted to move 2,000 miles away, but the beauty and the grandeur is simply stunning. And I think as my mind is continually lifted up to the glory of a God who could create this majesty. I think if I lived out here, I would be worshiping every second. A number of years ago, I was talking to my grandmother. My grandmother grew up in Colorado Springs, right in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. And I said to her one day, I said, Grandma, what was it like growing up right in the middle of all those mountains? She said to me, well, to be honest, after a while, you just don't even notice that they're there. Familiarity can kill the passion. And that's the danger that faces us too spiritually, particularly those of us who have grown up in the church. We've heard the gospel in the name of Jesus again and again and again. Like the Israelites, we've been given the glory and the covenants and the scriptures and the worship and the promises and the examples of faith and those who have gone before us were surrounded by these things. And yet we can begin to take the very abundance of blessings for granted such that they no longer move us. 
We can become so familiar with our routine of Sunday worship or our habits of prayer and reading God's word that they no longer impact our hearts or our souls. When familiarity ought to kindle passion. You know how it is when you talk to a couple who has been married 50 years and longer and they say, we love each other more today than we did on the day of our marriage. Such a powerful testimony. But that is the way it ought to be, that familiarity kindles that passion. And so the question that each of us have to ask ourselves as we search our hearts this morning is, is my repeated exposure to the gospel, is my routine of worship bringing an increased gratitude to God and an increased love for Jesus Christ as I am reminded again and again of what he has done for me? Or is this repeated routine leaving me bored and unengaged by the King of Kings who welcomes me yet again into his presence? Is another chance to worship Jesus this week, today, kindling my passion and my love for Jesus? Or is it killing it with familiarity and taking it for granted? That's the first question we have to ask our hearts. This leads to the second question for our hearts. And this is an important one for us to think about. And the question is this. Do we realize that the more we have heard the gospel, the more we have heard scripture and seen God's glory in Jesus Christ, the greater our sin and the greater will be our judgment if we still choose to reject him. And hold on to our way of life instead. You know, we know how this works. Any of you who have ever raised a toddler, you know you, you, you set that, well, younger than a toddler, really, that baby in the high chair. And the first taste of the food, they realize it's not the food they prefer and they hurl it right over the side of that high chair. And as a parent, of course, with great patience and mercy, you instruct them that this is not how they're supposed to act. But then they throw it over again and then they throw it over again and the more they are instructed and disciplined and corrected and the more they continue to hurl that food over the side, the greater the discipline, the greater the judgment that they receive and justly so. But Jesus says the same thing is true spiritually. In Matthew chapter 11 verses 20 to 24, Jesus denounces three cities in which he had spent significant time and done many miracles saying it would be more tolerant or more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for these cities who had seen so much evidence of the kingdom of God and yet rejected it. And so in the same way, I have to warn each one of you That every Sunday you come and hear the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Every Sunday you hear the gospel proclaimed and yet persist in rejecting him or in going your own way instead, the greater the judgment you are justly earning for yourself before the throne of God. J.C. Ryle expressed it so well when he said, thousands do not see that one of the greatest sins a man can commit in the sight of God is to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and refuse to believe it. To be invited to repent and believe and find salvation in his son and yet to remain careless and unbelieving and committed to your own way instead. Oh, do not reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not let familiarity with him 
lead you or keep you from recognizing what you have in such a Savior. And so my prayer this morning as we come to an end is that we would make no assumptions about Jesus that would lead to a rejection of him. That every one of us will see here a testimony of the glory of Jesus, the Son of God who gave himself for us. That there would be no root of unbelief in any of our hearts. But that each one of us today can say that we have repented of sin and found the gracious hand of Jesus ready to save. And my prayer for everyone who has done that this morning is that as we hear the good news of Jesus Christ, the glory of the gospel again, that this week and next week and the week after, the greater, not the less, will be our joy, our gratitude, our worship, our passion, our zeal, our love for such a Savior. May every day and every week that we hear the gospel kindle our passion for our Savior and not kill it. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this passage in your word. How we thank you for your grace in testifying to us the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, who came and announced the kingdom of God in him and invited us to repent and believe and then showed us the extent of your saving grace, dying on the cross in our place and rising again for our eternal life. Father, may there be no root of unbelief. Spirit of God, confront our hearts and call us to faith in you. As we gaze on you, will we willingly give up the sin that we are wanting to walk in, that we might be yours. And Father, as we worship you week after week, as we reflect on the years that we have known of Jesus May each day, each week, each rehearsal of the gospel kindle in our hearts a growing love for you and gratitude to you and worship of you. Father, protect our hearts. Keep us from that familiarity which would dull the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.